Welcome to part 14 of the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs podcast presentation of Near Death, a rainy day investigation. Before we get started on this week's installment, where Jennifer and Nate make the final confrontation in the mystery of Diane's ghost, and we catch up with the men who shot Nate, please take a moment, if you haven't already, to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app or on Audible, so you don't miss an exciting chapter. You'll also get my weekly short stories. Please like and share. It really helps to allow me to continue providing the audio versions of my work for free. This unabridged audio edition is presented as a prelude to the upcoming release of the next book of the series, Afterlife. So, make sure to follow all the authors on Amazon using the links in this episode's description to be notified when it's available. Until then, enjoy the following chapters of Near Death. Chapter 46 Nate pulled himself up the fire escape. The steps were too steep to climb like stairs. He had to use his good arm to pull himself up one step at a time. His bad ankle grew more painful with each step. He had crawled through the window on instinct. Chasing the bad guy was automatic. It wasn't until he was on the final landing before the roof that he realized he wasn't wearing his shoulder holster. He had his cell phone, but right about now he was wishing he had at least grabbed the axe before he chased after Henderson, if that's who it was. He didn't need to catch him, just catch up to him. But, staring up the ladder leading to the roof, he wasn't sure that was an option. Nate tentatively reached for a rung on the ladder, then stepped up with his good foot and lifted himself up. He let go with his hand and grabbed for the next higher rung. Then he stepped up, straightened his leg, and repeated the maneuver until he could peer over the parapet. It was dark and storm clouds were obscuring what little moonlight there was. A distant flash of lightning illuminated the rooftop. There was no one to be seen. Just a sparse forest of vents and smokestacks, and in one area, a collection of dilapidated lawn furniture surrounding what looked like a charcoal grill. Nate loped the rest of the way up the ladder and swung his booted foot up onto the gravelly surface. Raindrops started to fall. Nate silently cursed himself again for rushing into a situation so ill-prepared. But it was too late now. He took out his phone and turned on the camera. He switched it to video mode, starting at recording, then tucked it into the breast pocket of his jacket with the lens facing outward as a makeshift body camera. He may not be able to effectuate an arrest, but he could do his best to gather evidence. He walked toward the stairwell entrance that poked up in the center of the roof like a tiny house. The rain transitioned from a drizzle to a light shower. Nate made a wide path around the stairwell entrance, scanning for any sign of Henderson. He peered over the side. Below was the rooftop of the building where Luther Laramie had fallen to his death. It was about four stories below. A flash of lightning showed him that Diane's attacker had not gone that way. There was no sign of anyone, dead or alive. He continued walking around the edge of the roof, coming upon the front of the building. A fall from this side, he confirmed, would most certainly be fatal. A gust of wind blew, and along with it came a sheet of rain that instantly drenched Nate. He started walking back toward the stairwell entrance, and just as he was about to reach for the doorknob, he saw it slowly start to open. He hurriedly limped to one side so that the opening door would hide him. His hand brushed against something leaning against the wall. It was a broom handle. He grabbed it with his good hand and held it in front of him. The door swung closed. Standing there in the rain, looking out across the rooftop, was Jennifer. There's no one here, Nate said. Jennifer jumped and let out a surprised shout. Nate, you scared the hell out of me. They both sighed with relief as their hearts settled back into their chests. Sorry, I thought you might be Henderson. Did you hear or see anyone else in the stairwell? No, she answered. You left Diane alone? Nate asked. I took her to Rose's place. The police and an ambulance are on their way. Let's get you back inside. You're drenched, Jennifer said. She grabbed the doorknob and twisted, but the door was locked. I guess that's what this is for, 
He tossed the broom handle aside. Come on, we can go back down the fire escape, Nate suggested. They trudged through the rain toward the fire escape Nate had climbed. This must be the way the attacker got into Diane's bedroom tonight, and maybe that's how they tampered with her stove. When they were about ten feet away, a flash of lightning cut through the darkness, revealing a figure standing in the rain between them and the fire escape. It was wearing a hooded raincoat, and, in its gloved hands, was the axe. Henderson, Nate shouted. Don't even think about it. The police are on their way. Henderson? The figure asked in an ancient, creaky voice. Rose Walton lifted her head so that Nate and Jennifer could more clearly see her face. Who's Henderson? Rose, Jennifer asked. What are you doing up here? I thought you were watching Diane. Oh, I'll take care of her in good time. Nate slapped his forehead. Of course, it was you. You're the one who killed Sarah Montgomery and those other girls. I rid the world of those evil temptresses, you mean. Those hussies who flaunted themselves in front of other women's men. Your husband worked in the financial district, Nate guessed. That was the connection. Well, finally a policeman with half a brain, Rose said. Luther never killed anyone. It was you. They had it coming, Rose insisted. But Diane doesn't, Jennifer said. Why would you want to hurt her? She's just like them. Coming and going at all hours? It's not respectable. Do you really think she's working late all those evenings at her office? I know what goes on between young women and their bosses. The fire escape. The platform stretches from your bedroom window to Diane's. You could come and go as you pleased. Rose smiled. No one thinks to lock their bedroom window ten stories up. And the axe, he said. You didn't need to buy one. They're all over the city, on every floor of every apartment building. They made it so easy to punish those husband-stealing hussies. Nate took a step toward Rose. Put the axe down, Rose. You can't get away. Well, that's the beauty of it, isn't it? Rose said with a smile. I don't need to get away if you two aren't alive to tattle on me. Rose raised the axe and lunged toward Nate. She was surprisingly quick and strong. Nate moved backward and raised his arm to fend off her blow, but his plastic boot slipped on the loose gravel and he fell hard. The axe blade swooshed through the air above him, another flash of lightning glinting off the steel blade. The momentum of the missed blow put Rose off balance. Jennifer rushed at Rose, grabbing her from behind in a bear hug. Get off me, you witch! Rose shouted. You don't think I know what that girl does in that apartment? You think I don't know what she did with my husband? Jennifer realized that Rose was somehow conflating Diane with the woman who had been murdered there sixty years earlier. The old woman squirmed at Jennifer's grasp like a greased pig. Both of them were wet and slippery, and Rose managed to get herself into a position where she could stomp on Jennifer's foot, loosening the bear hug enough for Rose to slip away. The old woman swung at Jennifer with the axe. The blunt side of the axe head hit Jennifer on the side. Nate could hear the ribs crack from where he was. He struggled to his feet, a rush of adrenaline offsetting the pain in his ankle and shoulder. Jennifer backed up toward the edge of the roof as Rose swung wildly with the axe. She was out of space, nowhere left to run, and was leaning precariously over the edge. Luther, Nate shouted, help us! Rose spun around to face Nate, searching the roof for Luther's ghost. Where is he? I'll knock him off this roof for good this time! While she was distracted, Nate aimed a crescent kick with his booted foot at Rose's head. The hard plastic of the orthopedic device connected with her skull, and she fell limply to the rain-soaked gravel. Jennifer tried to stop herself, but she lost her balance and teetered and then tipped over the edge. Nate saw her fall and lunged forward. He caught her belt with his good hand, but 
Her momentum carried him over the edge with her. He dropped to his knees, trying to put his waist at the same height as the lip of the parapet and use his body as an anchor. But everything was wet and slippery. He had a good grip on Jennifer's belt, but she was dead weight. There was nothing she could do to help him save her. Nate shook his injured arm out of the sling. It was sore from disuse, but he could move it. He grabbed onto the parapet and managed to stop himself from sliding any further. But the strain on his shoulder was excruciating. Jennifer, he shouted. Can you grab my arm? Jennifer was hanging face down, wondering why she hadn't hit the pavement yet. She twisted her head around and saw Nate straining to keep the two of them from falling. She reached one arm behind her and found Nate's hand clenching her belt. I think so, she said. She found his jacket sleeve and pulled on it. But since his other arm had been tucked inside the jacket, foregoing the sleeve altogether, the jacket slipped off Nate's back and fell onto her face. Nate grunted as the maneuver put more strain on his mending ligaments and muscles. Then, a sharp pain lit up his shoulder as he felt something tear. He screamed in agony, but he held on. Jennifer pushed the jacket aside and grabbed onto his shirt. She managed to swing her other arm around and grab onto the rain-soaked fabric, then pulled herself up enough to grab Nate's belt, lifting herself higher until she could swing a leg up and over the lip of the roof. Once her weight was on top of Nate and not hanging off of him, she was able to roll her entire body over the parapet. Jennifer kept a firm grip on his belt and shirt, pulling him with her, and they dropped onto the gravel and rolled away from the edge. They lay panting for a moment, rain pelting their faces as they tried to catch their breath. Jennifer tilted her head and saw Rose lying face down, a trickle of blood at her temple, mixing with the rain. What happened to her? Nate lifted his bad foot into the air. I gave her the boot, he said. Jennifer couldn't help but laugh. Oh, don't make me laugh. I think she broke my ribs. Nate laughed too, but the motion sent a searing wave of pain through his shoulder. Yeah, I'm not in much better shape, he said. Jennifer sat up, suddenly aware that Nate's arm was out of its sling. Your arm? Are you all right? You're alive, I'm alive. That's all that matters. The sirens of approaching police cars cut through the sound of the rain. Jennifer put her arm over Nate, careful to avoid his injured shoulder, and drew him into a hug. She kissed him gently on the cheek. Thank you, she whispered into his ear. Nate knew the pain in his shoulder meant that his recovery had just been set back if he could even make a recovery now. The doctor had cautioned him about moving his arm, let alone stressing it with the weight of two people. He was grateful that the rain hid the tears forming in his eyes. He put his arm around Jennifer and returned the hug. Anytime. Chapter 47 The rain had stopped a few minutes earlier, but the street was still slick from the storm. Rose was strapped to a gurney when she was read her rights. Two uniformed officers got into the back of the ambulance with her. Once the doors were closed, it wound its way through the maze of gawkers and police cars that had gathered in front of the Oakley Arms. A second ambulance loaded Diane into the back. Jennifer was at her side. I can't believe it was Rose, Diane said. She was a bit nosy, but she seemed so harmless. Do you think that's why the ghost... What did you call him? Luther Laramie, Jennifer answered. Do you think that's what Luther was trying to tell me? It's as good an explanation as any. Unfortunately, he wasn't cooperative enough to make an appearance on any of our cameras. Well, I, for one, am a believer, Diane said. Do you think I'll see him again? Hard to say. We did manage to clear his name, so maybe he will feel free to move on to whatever is next for him. I hope so, Diane added. Nate approached. His bad arm was bound tightly to his body to prevent any further injury, and he had a blanket draped over his shoulder. How is she doing? he asked. 
Jennifer reached out and squeezed Diane's hand before answering Nate. Just going to be fine. Thank you, Diane said to Nate. I don't know what would have happened if you two hadn't been there. No need to thank us. In fact, I think it was we who gave Rose the impression you would be alone. Well, if you hadn't, she might have tried to attack me when I actually was alone. I don't understand why she didn't try to kill you when I left you with her, Jennifer said. I don't know. She was acting strange after you had gone. At first I thought she was worried that the attacker would come after her next. But then I realized she was angry. She asked what a man and woman were doing in the single girl's apartment so late at night. Then she grabbed a raincoat from her closet, but instead of going out the front door, she went into her bedroom. After a while I went to check on her, but the room was empty and the window was open. She must have gone back to my apartment using the fire escape to get the axe. It was obvious she had used one before, Jennifer added, feeling her cracked ribs. You're lucky she didn't kill you, Diane exclaimed. I think we can thank Luther for that, Jennifer added. Nate rolled his eyes. Come on, how much more evidence do you need? She asked him. I'm just saying, everything that happened didn't need any supernatural explanation to happen. It was the fact that Diane locked her bedroom door that forced us to use the fire axe to break it open, which is what connected everything together. The paramedics loaded Diane into the back of the ambulance. She smiled knowingly at Jennifer, then said to Nate, My bedroom door doesn't have a lock. The doors closed and Diane's transport flashed its lights to clear the way. Jennifer gave Nate a what-about-that look. Nate rolled his eyes again. Seriously, a stuck door. And, Jennifer said, You saw Luther on the rooftop. I heard you call out to him. That was just to distract Rose so I could save you. Jennifer raised an eyebrow. I swear, if I'd actually seen a ghost, I would have fallen off the roof after you and we'd both know whether there is an afterlife right now. Max approached. Okay, I swear I saw at least two ambulances leave here, but you two apparently didn't get the memo. I'm fine, Nate said without thinking. No, you're not, Jennifer and Max said together. Max turned to Jennifer. And judging by the way you're breathing, I'm guessing you have a couple broken ribs. Come on. I'm taking you both to the ER. No arguments. Besides, I gotta hear this story. An 80-year-old axe murderer? Jeez, Nate. Wait till the cold case guys hear about this. Max led him to his car and held the passenger door open for Jennifer while Nate led himself into the back seat. Buckle up, Nate advised. Max turned to Jennifer. Nate has a problem with my driving, he told her. And I have a problem with his passengering. That's not a word, Nate said. This is what I'm talking about. Max said to Jennifer. He's such a know-it-all. He is, isn't he? Jennifer agreed. How long have you been his partner? Too long. Oh, brother, Nate muttered. Max turned on the police lights in the car and blasted a piercing note from the siren. A path cleared, and he drove them away from the thinning crowd. It wasn't raining, but the sky was still thick with clouds. Seymour and Freddie had been staking out the tall apartment building ever since they saw the detective and his girlfriend arrive earlier that day. The squad car that was ever-present outside his home hadn't followed him. Evidently, his bodyguards weren't concerned about protecting him when he went out, assuming the two robbers wouldn't try something in public. But their situation had grown desperate. They were boxed in. The man they owed money to had contacts far and wide, and was known for never letting someone get away with cheating him. It made sense to Deuce. He didn't mind spending a lot of money, even more than he was owed in some cases, to chase after anyone who dared to cross him. It made the others fall in line. Freddie and Seymour were in an impossible situation. The shooting at the high-end store that promised to be filled with a lot of rich people with expensive fensible items had prevented them from maximizing their haul. Instead of coming out of there with enough cash to pay off Deuce and set themselves up for a while, they came up short and had an attempted murder charge waiting for them. 
The plan was to lie low. The cop wasn't dead, and once he recovered and some time passed, they would be able to plan another score and get out from under their current situation. But somehow the cop had tracked them down. They were no longer anonymous robbers, but wanted cop shooters with names and faces. How he had managed to find them at the Selma food trucks, or the safe house, was still a puzzle. They had ditched the old car and likely wouldn't need the convertible they had boosted from the long-term parking at the airport for very long. Deuce had put the idea into their heads that since they couldn't do anything with Detective Rainey and their tail, they had to get him out of the way. If they proved that they could advance to the next level, he might have a position in his organization where they could work off their debt and get protection from the police. They hadn't expected the detective to spend so much time in the building. It wasn't where the girlfriend lived, and they had started to worry that he had made them yet again and had moved into some sort of safe house. When they heard the first sirens converging on the building, their first assumption was that they had been spotted and they were cornered. But the police cars and ambulances drove right past where they were parked on the street. One officer even asked them politely to move their car, which they did. The activity drew a crowd, all trying to catch a glimpse of some drama playing out on the roof of the building. Freddy drove their car down the block and found a loading zone to wait in. The police were busy with whatever was going on at the building. Seymour had gotten out of the car and went to find out exactly what that was. From what he could piece together from conversations between the first responders and onlookers, there was supposedly a murderer living in the building who had been caught. Eventually, two women were wheeled out of the building on stretchers. One was old, easily in her 80s, and the other was younger. Shortly after they were carted out, the detective and his girlfriend appeared. Both seemed injured as well. Seymour watched them for a while, but nearly left when it looked like they would leave in one of the ambulances. Instead, they got into the car of another police detective, the other one who was at the store during the robbery, and who they had also seen outside of Rainey's house. Seymour hurried back to where the car was parked and got in. They're coming this way. The detective, his partner, and the girlfriend. Is this a good idea? Shouldn't we wait until, you know, there are fewer cops around? It's the perfect time. The cops are all busy back at the building and we'll be heading away from them. Just put a shot into the driver's head. Then we can take out the other two and be on our way before anyone knows what's going on. Deuce wants to see us take things to the next level. This should do it. Freddy nodded. He pulled a gun out of the glove compartment. Seymour started the car. They watched Max's Volvo emerge from the crowd of people and emergency vehicles crowded around the Oakley Arms. When the car drove by, he pulled away from the curb directly behind them. As Max turned the corner, a black convertible with its top down pulled in behind them. Nate eyed the car. Max, did you spot that Mustang that caught our tail? Yeah, that who I think it is? Our friends from the robbery, Nate confirmed. What do you think they want? Well, I don't think they're dropping off a cake. Jennifer, he buckled up. She nodded nervously. Lean your seat back as far as it will go and stay as low as you can. Jennifer lowered her seat back so that her head was practically in the back seat with Nate. She nervously looked over at him. Nate offered her a reassuring smile, then he gave Max a determined look in the rearview mirror. Hit it, he said. Max stepped on the accelerator, and the wheels spun on the wet pavement before the car raced down the street. The convertible easily kept up. The fat guy was driving, and the skinny guy was sitting high on the passenger side. He lifted a gun and aimed it at Nate. Hang on, Max warned. He downshifted and spun the car into a sharp turn that took them into a narrow alley. The skinny guy fired three shots. One of them hit the car, but the others went wide. It took the fat guy a few seconds to catch up to Max's maneuver. You thinking what I'm thinking? Nate asked. Yeah, I'm on it, Max answered. Another shot. This one punched through the rear window and smacked into the rearview mirror. Nate threw his body over Jennifer's. 
Max spun the car around into another high-speed turn. A fifth shot missed the car completely. Max reached for the radio mic hanging off the dashboard. Captain Bodie, you still at the arms? A voice crackled back. Is that you, Lee? Yeah, Cap. I'm coming in hot with a couple of angry wannabe cop killers. Can you uh, whip up a welcoming party? How fast? About a minute. Jeez, Lee. Didn't I see you leave with Rainey? Yeah, I was taking him in a civvy to the hospital. Another sharp turn. Two gunshots slammed into the trunk of the car. Nate could feel Jennifer tense underneath him. You're going to be fine, he reassured her. All right, we'll be ready, Captain Bodie said over the radio. Can we go any faster? Nate asked Max. I don't want to lose them. Max made a quick succession of lane changes. Nate couldn't see what was going on, but heard the squeal of brakes and the crash of metal on metal. It wasn't Max's car that crashed, likely some other motorist who was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Another bullet whizzed over Nate's head, and he could feel broken glass falling over him. Max didn't flinch. He drove with a purpose. Hang on, he said, and swung the wheel sharply. He sped up, then slammed on the brakes. Nate pressed himself firmly against Jennifer, using his good arm to pull her close. He could feel her arms wrap around him. The Mustang didn't have time to react to Nate's sudden stop and smashed into the car. Nate heard a thump against the roof of Max's car and then something rolling across the hood. He lifted himself up and saw the skinny robber writhing in pain against the shattered windshield. The fat guy was dazed. His face was bloody from the impact with the airbag. Half a dozen police officers stood around the car, aiming their guns at the robbers. Jennifer sat up and looked around. Are you okay? Nate asked her. She nodded nervously. Yeah, are you? Nate nodded, then turned his attention to his old partner. Max, don't take this the wrong way, but I'm never riding with you again. Max gave him a look of surprise. Hey, you just cleared two cases in one night. I'm your lucky charm. Jennifer laughed. He's got a point, she said. Nate smiled. He looked at the two robbers who nearly took his life and suddenly realized how much had been weighing on him. The events of the last month had pushed his life off the track he thought it was on. He knew his shoulder would keep him from returning to active duty even before he aggravated it, saving Jennifer. And the feelings he had for Jennifer, what were they? He certainly liked her and respected her, even if he found some of her ideas incongruous with her academic background. She had pressed him about what he had gone through, and even though there was some of it he couldn't explain, he still wasn't willing to credit anything supernatural to it. Jennifer reached out and slipped her hand into Nate's for comfort. Was her interest in him purely as a subject for her research? If he didn't play along with her notions about near-death experiences and astral projections, would she want to be a part of his life? There were moments when they were together that Nate felt a connection with Jennifer. Yes, working on Diane's case felt like he was filling the void of police work with something that made him feel useful. And, to some degree, she was a replacement for Max, although much more intelligent, interesting and attractive, and a lot less annoying. Was all of that just because of the bet she had somewhat forced on him? Was there a part of whatever relationship they had formed that would go on, even just as friends? Nate, Jennifer said. There's another ambulance. We should go. He nodded. Hey, you kids, Max said. Don't stay out too late. Nate slid out of the back seat, then turned back to his old partner. Max, you saved our lives. Thank you. You're welcome, Max answered. Now go take care of yourselves, or I'll get behind the wheel of that ambulance. Jennifer walked up to Nate and took his hand again. She squeezed it and led him toward the ambulance. I wonder how Dave and Madge are getting along, she asked. Chapter 48 Nate sat in front of Captain Bodie's desk, his arm back in a sling. 
He handed her a sheaf of papers. Bodie flipped to the last page and saw Nate's signature. Are you sure about this? She asked. The doctors say I'm looking at a couple of years of surgeries and rehab. With this shoulder, I'm a liability. I had a good run. No regrets. Bodie nodded. Well, you certainly went out in style, closing a case your uncle worked on. That's quite a victory for the Rainey family. Yeah, Uncle Bill couldn't believe it. He always thought there was more to the story, but he never suspected that shy little housewife was a serial killer. Max knocked on the partially open office door and stepped inside. Hey, boss. I hope you weren't planning on sneaking out without saying hi. Not at all, Nate assured him. You heard about the party at the shanty, Max added. Of course, I'll be there. What's next? Bodie asked. Well, I thought I'd get my PI license, hang out my shingle. You're going to be happy surveilling cheating spouses and finding lost dogs? Max asked. It'll keep me busy. Keep in touch, Bodie said with the tone of an order. No promises, but I may be able to throw some consulting work your way. Thanks, I will. Hey, Max said excitedly. Looks like we might be able to keep the band together after all. Nate shook his head. Thanks again, Max. You promised me you'd catch the guys who shot me, and you came through. Though it did come with a hefty bill for damages, Bodie added. None of that was my fault, except for the stuff that was. But hey, what price can you put on catching bad guys? Bodie glanced at a report on her desk. $239,000. Max whistled. Well, then I guess I better get back to work catching some more bad guys. See you around, Nate. He offered his old partner a casual salute. Nate nodded back and smiled. He got up from the chair, realizing it was now official. His police career was over. Captain Bodie reached across the desk with her left hand so Nate could shake it without that awkward cross-handed gesture so many people found themselves making with Nate's right arm out of commission. Sorry to see you go, Nate, she said. You were the only one who could handle Max as a partner. I think you actually turned him into a pretty good cop. He's going to be fine, and so am I. Thanks for everything. Nate turned and walked out of the captain's office. He didn't avoid the maze of goodbyes as he wound his way through the bullpen. He made sure to acknowledge every one of them, from the veteran detectives to the rookie-uniformed officers. Many more who weren't on duty he would see later that night at the shanty, the nearby cop bar. It took him nearly an hour to leave. When he finally made it out of the building and out onto the street, he pulled out his phone and checked the time. Then he used it to summon an Uber that was conveniently just around the corner. The driver saw that Nate had his arm in a sling and hurriedly got out of the car to open the rear passenger side door for his fare. Nate stared out the window, a smile on his face as he replayed memories of his time on the force. His first day, his first arrest, making detective. They were the milestones that had marked out the road he had been on for nearly half of his life if he counted his years studying criminal justice in college. Are you a teacher or a student? the driver asked him. Excuse me? Nate asked back, surprised by the question. Your destination is the university. I figure you gotta be one or the other. I'm visiting a friend, he said. The answer seemed strange when he said it aloud. It was time for Jennifer's introduction to anthropology lecture. She had offered him a standing invitation to visit any time. And today was a day he could do with something to take his mind off the drastic turn his life had taken. Is she a teacher or a student? The driver persisted. She's a teacher. A very good one. They don't get paid enough if you ask me, the driver said. And the stuff they gotta put up with. Those overly sensitive students, ungrateful parents, overpaid administrators. It's a wonder anyone sticks with it anymore. Nate nodded in agreement. The driver sensed Nate's reluctance to engage in conversation and turned on the radio instead. He happened to catch the tail end of a news report following up on the case of the octogenarian serial killer. She had had her arraignment this morning. 
The story of Rose Walton and Luther Laramie and Jennifer and Nate's involvement in solving the 60-year-old case had made the front page of the newspapers not only in town but across the country. It spread like wildfire across the internet, and he had turned down several requests to appear on various television news programs. Jennifer was not quite so shy. From what Nate knew about Jennifer's relationship with the dean, he wouldn't be happy with the publicity she generated, especially since the media was playing up the ghost angle. They made a big thing about how her equipment had captured unusual electromagnetic activity during the moments when Rose had assaulted Diane in her bedroom. But the cameras all had been devoid of any evidence of Luther's alleged presence. Jennifer had impressed him since that night about the bet. Would she claim she had won and insist he talk to her about his experience? And if she did, would he tell her about the dreams he had, especially the one during his surgery when he somehow saw the robber's safe house? He had convinced himself that, at the time, he hadn't seen anything specific, and his mind had altered the memory to fit his later experience. Regardless, he was sure she would make a big deal about it. They had exchanged a few emails and text messages since that night, but the topic of who won the bet was never broached. The more time passed, the more he accepted the idea that what he had perceived as their concern for each other, and the flirting between the two of them, was just her usual banter, nothing special. Nate had toyed with the idea of just asking her out more than a few times, but always backed down. Between the endless hours he spent in the hospital and the time reassuring his mother he was really okay, there just wasn't time. His mother, of course, was curious about his relationship with such a pretty lady, as she referred to Dr. Day. Nate's promise to follow up on Jennifer's offer to recommend some psychics she trusted kept the bulk of his mother's personal questions at bay. They hadn't had the dinner with Nate's mother like they had planned, and he wondered if that whole idea might fall by the wayside as well. Either the ride was quicker than Nate had expected, or he completely zoned out and lost track of time. The driver pulled the car in front of the building that held Jennifer's lecture hall. Here we are, buddy. Need a hand getting out? Thanks, Nate said. I've got it. He let himself out and stood waiting on the sidewalk for a while after the car drove away, trying to decide if he was going to chicken out of seeing her or not. Thank you for listening to Part 14 of Near Death, a Rainy Day Investigation, on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs podcast. Near Death was written by Rich Hosick, Arnold Rudnick, and Lloyd Auerbach. I hope you're enjoying the audio version of this novel. Please remember to share Near Death and my weekly stories with your friends or anyone who enjoys audiobooks. You can find out more about the Rainy Day Investigation book series at rainyandday.com. That's R-A-N-E-Y and D-A-Y-E dot com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Rich Hosek. Give us a like on Facebook, at Rainy and Day. And don't forget to check out my books on Amazon. And follow me there to make sure you get notified of when Book 2, Afterlife, is released. Thanks again, and all the very best.